Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. In this episode, the second of a two-part series, I continue my conversation with Jeff Leitner, a longtime friend who was there at the start of the Junto Institute and remains by my side on this journey. This time, Jeff asks me to share a little about my background, how I got to appreciate the human side of business, a theory we came up with about a year ago, and the role that emotional intelligence has played in my life and that it can play in yours. So you and I have been friends for a long time, so I obviously know a lot about your story, but tell the audience about yourself. Sure. I'll be brief with this, but just to provide some background, and I realize that there might be a couple of things here that you may not know, so this, this will be fun. Um, well, I was born in India and uh, immigrated to Canada with my parents and then subsequently to the U.S. all as a child. Wanted to be a doctor my entire life. Um, it was the only career ambition I ever had, but in college realized that uh, it wasn't for me. Um, and didn't know what else to do. So I fell into business and pursued a banking career right out of college, which uh, was not fun for me. Uh, went on to get an MBA and took an entrepreneurship course because it was offered and just absolutely fell in love with it. But didn't fall in love so much with the idea of just starting businesses, but actually fell in love with the people side of things. Uh, so back then we did case studies on Dell Computer Corporation and Microsoft, and it was the stories that I read about Michael Dell and Bill Gates that really stimulated me. They just seemed like normal people, which was counter to what I was experiencing in corporate America. Looking back, um, I realized that it was a it was this human side of business that I always appreciated, but didn't really have the language back then to identify that. In fact, one of my friends back then, I went to the Kellogg School at Northwestern, and, and he, he went with me and he said, you're one of those anti-Kellogg Kellogg grads because I didn't want to go do all the things that Kellogg grads back in the 90s were doing. And I realized that I traced that all the way back to my history class in junior year of high school. And the reason I remember that is because we used to um, have to do daily current event reports. And I rarely did the current events of the day. I would go to the back page of the Daily Herald newspaper, a suburban Chicago paper, and would read these human interest stories. My teacher would always tell me that I wasn't fulfilling the assignment. He'd say, Raman, you need to do the current events, not these stories about people in the community. And so it was interesting because I didn't realize that until I was well into my maybe 30s or 40s. It's, it's always been something that I had a, had a deep passion about. Let me go back to the Michael Dell, Bill Gates story. What about them struck you as particularly interesting? Well, it was less about them specifically as individuals. It was more that I was paying attention to the fact that Bill Gates was comfortable leaving the conventional career path, starting this company with a friend of his, and doing it his way. I grew up in an immigrant household with a family who comes from the old country, very parochial. There's a system. There's a way of doing things. We come to the West. The U.S. is you know, arguably one of the most structured, systematic cultures in the entire world. And so, like many people, just believe like there was a way, and one didn't question that. And what got me going was that these guys and ladies who we call entrepreneurs did things their own way. And as an impressionable 20-something, that was inspiring. The problem was I was in corporate America at the time, and so I had this 
duality existing and uh, didn't want one, wanted the other, but didn't know what that was. And so I kept reading about these entrepreneurs who did everything their way. So it was their willingness to break with convention that caught you? Yes, and maybe not overtly, right? So some entrepreneurs don't necessarily say, I'm going to go and break convention. They just say, I see a problem, I'm going to solve it. And then when those of us are observing them from the outside, we see it as, quote unquote, breaking convention. Okay, so now you're stuck in a bank, and where does our story go from there? So I fortunately got laid off. The company was sold. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. My wife and I had just been married, and uh, she gave me the blessing to go out on my own without my having any idea what that meant. So I put out a shingle, started as a snot-nosed 20-something consultant with an MBA, and started to work with startups and small companies back in the mid-90s, just as the dot-com boom was going. Um, did that for a number of years, and then started teaching in the early 2000s at DePaul University here in Chicago, uh, where I also subsequently ran the Entrepreneurship Center. As you know, that that's where you and I met, so it was many moons ago. So let's talk about what you loved about teaching in the university setting. Uh, what I loved about teaching was watching these students grow and learn and develop. It was magical. DePaul, at least back then, I think it still is, was on a quarter or trimester system. So our classes were 11 weeks long. To see how someone who, um, I usually taught seniors or grad students, so they're, what, 20 to 28 years old typically. But to see people develop in 11 weeks was magical. It was really remarkable to see that happen. Mind you, at the time, I was also a parent, so I was watching my children grow up, but we have daily contact with our children. And in these cases, I had weekly contact with students. It was just incredibly inspiring and stimulating. So there were periods when you saw the light go on. Mm -hmm. Do you remember a particular issue or insight that was the most common reason the light went on? No, not necessarily. You know, there are probably a couple of them. One of the common ones is that many students get to this point where they say, I can do this too. And that's really powerful. Um, some of them say that. Others, they don't say it verbally, but you can tell by their body language just or by the questions that they ask. Another one is, I now understand. So similar to, to my experience when I took my MBA course, you know, I had students come up and say, oh my gosh, I see my father in a completely different light now. He's been an entrepreneur my whole life, but I just kind of took it for granted. He ran a, you know, our, our, an auto body shop or a grocery store. So that was really fun. On the flip side of the coin, you're no longer teaching in a university setting. What is it about that that struck you as constraining? Oh, without a doubt, the bureaucracy is a really big constraint, especially for us entrepreneurial types. And secondly, it was just I wanted to do so much more that I couldn't do in a university setting, partially because of the bureaucracy, partially because of financial constraints. Um, and so that's kind of what led to the departure and doing something like Junto. All right, let's move on to a conversation you and I had about a year ago. I think it's a it's a good idea for helping set the scene for what we're talking about. We uh, we made up a theory when we were together. Uh, we have no evidence that this is true, but we thought it was so interesting that it must be true. And we argue that there have been sort of three waves in the history of business. The first one is related to a scarcity of knowledge about how people get this done. And this led to the rise in MBA programs. Once upon a time, they might have existed, but they weren't as omnipresent as they are now. The second had to do with scarcity of money, scarcity of resources, and this led to the growth of Silicon Valley and venture capital. And then you contend that we're now in a third wave and that the third wave is about something very different than knowledge or resources. You want to tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, that was that was such a fun conversation, and it has stayed with me for this past year. So, you know, to provide a little bit more color now for the listeners here, business has always been attacked by a lot of people in business, but also especially by people outside of business as being financially driven. MBAs not having any souls, the movie Wall Street back in the 80s, and all of us having a profit motive as being the reason why we why we go into business. And there's there's some truth to that, but I think it's those are just easy generalizations. You know, there are some of us who, while yes, this is a for-profit enterprise that I'm running, that's not the reason that I wake up every single morning to make a buck. That's what I hope to be the outcome of it. What I have experienced now as someone who's middle-aged, mid-stage career and has seen a wave of economic cycles and has watched the world of entrepreneurship grow over the last 25 years is a movement, an increasing movement towards humanity and an increasing appreciation towards humanity. And if you think about some of the trends that we've seen develop in, in the last 10 to 15 years, particularly, whether it's millennials who want to work at a place that has purpose. People using the phrase work-life balance, which for those of us who grew up back in the 80s and 90s, we never heard that phrase. And just in the last few years, we are starting to hear more and more people in business talk about mental health as being a real issue and addressing it, which again, even 10 years ago, didn't happen. And a greater appreciation for, let's say, the European lifestyle of working the 35, 40, 45 hours a week but then having plenty of space during a year to be able to enjoy our lives. So those types of things I've recognized have emerged in the last 10 to 20 years, despite the fact that religion might be diminishing in terms of the, the following and practice of it, um, not just around the world, but particularly in the U.S., I actually believe we're becoming a more spiritual society. People are getting more in touch with who they are. People are getting more in touch with themselves at an earlier age. It doesn't surprise me now when I meet a 20 or 25-year-old who talks about spirituality and wanting to be in touch with him or herself. Whereas when we were growing up, we rarely heard that from our peer group. I think it's, this is also why we're experiencing all these reckonings, whether it's social, political, economic, there's just a variety of reckonings happening. And I think what's happening is these first two waves, as, as you and I like to call them, are effectively crumbling. We have this emergence of this third wave. And I believe that this century, if not the first half of the century, is going to be all about this. But you're tying this to business. This is not just a sort of uh, new age healing, but you believe that businesses will be oriented this way. I believe that they're already orienting this way. And even large companies, from what I'm seeing and hearing, you know, I'm not a part of any of them and I, and I don't work with any of them, but I know a handful of people who are talking about the fact that these topics that I just mentioned are being addressed in large companies. I'm with you, but let me push back for a minute as if I weren't. Isn't this just the latest version of cause marketing? Isn't this just another way for us to sell more sticks of chewing gum by uh, speaking to your soul? It may be, but I think there's a different market. Cause marketing, my understanding of it, is designed to effectively sell more sticks of chewing gum. And so the point there being that it's a marketing activity to attract or retain customers. What I'm referring to is a different audience, and that is namely the employee audience, right? People who want to work with you, maybe not even employees, but vendors also, people who want to do business with you. Again, 10 or 15 years ago, we didn't have best places to work lists. We didn't have Glassdoor. And today's younger generations are growing up, coming out of college saying, I mean, they literally are Googling best places to work in Chicago. 
And I've talked to young professionals who say that those are the only companies that I'm going to apply to. And so my point being that they're going after a different market, so to speak. Now, is that translating into kind of conventional marketing in terms of them reaching out to customers? I don't know enough about that. So this is the framework that Junto sort of sits in, right? This sort of third wave, a move towards humanity. Can you say a little bit about why that strikes you as important for entrepreneurship? Because I don't know where to put it on my balance sheet. It's interesting because this is probably what I should have said when you asked me the question about Dell and Gates. Most of us entrepreneurs bring who we are to what we do, and we don't even think about it. It's not conscious, and it's because we can. When I worked in corporate, I used to call it the light switch effect, that I, would, I was one of the first people to walk in the office in the morning, 6.30 to 7 a.m., and I literally and figuratively turned on a switch literally to turn on the lights because I was the first guy there, but figuratively to be someone who adapted to the norms of that place. But as an entrepreneur, I have always felt comfortable being who I am. And most of the entrepreneurs I know are the same way. And so as a result, just that alone requires us to be able to reconcile who we are with what we do. So you've referred to emotional intelligence as a well-kept secret. Tell me more about that. Let me provide some context. I began studying it, reading about it about 10 years ago. It then opened my eyes to why I was the person I was and why I was not becoming the person I thought I could be. I then started to apply it as much as I possibly could in my day-to-day -day interactions at work and at home and started to see different results, more positive results. I started to feel better about myself. I started to see changes in my interactions with almost everyone in my life. Then, as we started Junto, started to see those outcomes, and everything was connected to emotional intelligence. And I basically said, holy cow, this stuff actually works. Yet the problem with it was that it's always been just another trendy topic, another book that people chalk up to reading and saying, I got it. And like I said earlier, emotional intelligence is not about knowing, it's about doing. I started then telling people, like, this is the best kept secret out there because people oversimplify it. It is a really, really complex thing that takes years and years of not just continuous understanding, but more importantly, continuous application. And it takes so much more than just reading a book or reading a few blog posts to be able to understand it. And I think that until we get to a point where people have adopted this into their fitness routine, if you will, whereby many of us pay attention to our physical fitness, we work out, we eat well, many of us pay attention to our mental fitness. We, at this stage of our lives, we're uh, doing puzzles and uh, crosswords. It's the same idea that no one's talking about our emotional fitness. And just like the other types of fitness, it takes a long time to become fit. And many people are, God bless them, are born with this gift of being emotionally fit, or they were raised in households where their parents had these gifts. And so they were raised in the right type of environment. But I've learned in my experience that most people haven't, <laughs> that we all have these kooky stories and um, strange circumstances and unusual environments in which we grew up. And they start to see the power of it as adults and appreciate it more. Can you ever imagine emotional intelligence being part of the curriculum in kids' schools or in university? It already is in kids' schools. I think the, the latest statistic I saw was that it, it's in over 70% of American um, schools, in, in grade schools. Overtly. Uh, in some cases, overtly, but in many cases, not overtly. Uh, and a big part of that, by the way, is the parents, right? It's not, 
um, the, the system, but it's the parents. And at the university level, it is starting to become more common from what, I, from what I've heard. So we, we've talked a little bit about your own growth. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about how you've changed and developed in response to, to this mission? Uh, the only thing that I'll share is what I tend to share on a daily basis, and that is that um, I started my journey at the age of 40, and that was 10 years ago. And if this can happen to someone that old, this can happen in spades for many other people. And so I share that because I have noticed that most of us uh, don't recognize the true potential that we have. Uh, we don't look at ourselves in the mirror all the time. We we don't see ourselves every single day and every single moment, but other people do. So it's it's actually other people who see our potential. And to be around a group of people who see that potential on a daily basis is, I think, one of the best ways to live one's life. And so that's why we are flourishing together is because everyone is seeing everyone's potential together. I can share my experience of my journey. It's been a lot of work, but it's also just been more joy than anything else. Hopefully that provides some inspiration to people who are sitting there going, I'd like to get better. I need to get better. I want to get better. How can I do this? And back to what I said earlier, I think that something as simplistic as emotional intelligence or, or complex as it can actually be a secret for that to happen. So uh, several years ago, you invited me to join you for what was then the first Junto retreat. Outside of Chicago, it was frozen, as I recall. Uh, there was snow all the way up the windows. I wasn't sure whether you invited me because you liked me or didn't like me and wanted me to leave my, the warmth of my home. At that retreat, we were in a conversation in which emerged the idea that Junto was about the integration of business and the self. And I watched something click in you when we had that conversation. What's that? You are absolutely right. Like something did click. So that was the end of our second year in business, and we had replicated what we did our first year. So at that point, during those few months, Catherine and I knew that we had something. We knew we were enabling something in these people, and we just couldn't put our finger on it. I didn't have the language to describe it. So at that retreat, that language of integrating the business with the self, reconciling business with the self, merging business with the self, all made sense. And the reason was this idea that entrepreneurs bring their self to their business, but we don't talk enough about the spiritual self. We talk about more of the personality. We tend to, to get a little bit um, more pragmatic with it. We don't allow any dogma in it. We don't allow any spirituality in that conversation. You know, I'll never forget, we had a 40-year-old hockey player from Buffalo with broken teeth and broken nose, a rough-and-tumble guy who was in our first graduating class. And he gets up on stage at the first graduation, and this is a quote, not only did Junto make me a better CEO, it made me a better hockey coach, a better husband, and a better father. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not what we promised. It's not what we are telling people they're signing up for. But knowing that that can happen was without a doubt one of the most important moments of my life. And that was the first year. And again, we didn't have the language to describe that. Like, how do, how do we package that? And then when all of a sudden, a year later in that retreat, we came up with that line of integrating business with the self, that spoke it. So that's why now we're referring to that uh, phrase or language more so than we have in the past. 
you call Junto the tribe. How come? Yeah, uh, it's actually what we call the, the the Junto community, everyone who's involved with it. Uh, I'm a big fan of Seth Godin, as, as many people are, I imagine, who are listening. You know, he calls a tribe a group of people who are connected to one another um, and connected to an idea, and that tribes are about faith and belief in an idea and in a community, and that they are grounded in respect and admiration for the members. And I had read his book called Tribes around the time that Junto was kind of being conceived in my mind, even before it had a name. And it just spoke to me. It said, this is exactly what I can envision. The irony is, is that uh, the person who gave me the book happened to be uh, on my board back at the entrepreneurship center I ran. And he saw it as a means for me to do that uh, during my time there. I saw it as a means to do something far bigger and, and badder and better. And so I said, well, rather than just letting this kind of emerge on its own, let's just be explicit with it, that our tribe is connected to this idea because they're choosing to be there. Um, They believe in it when they have stuck around. And the word community is just so watered down and overly used that it didn't do it justice. Uh, But this was something that people could could relate to and resonate with. So you talk a lot about, not necessarily in this conversation, but generally, about the idea that organizations and people have to be clear on mission, vision, and values. Go into that for a minute, if you will. So in my experience, I have seen the power of those three things being the single most powerful leadership tool that any of us has in our tool belt. That doesn't necessarily apply to people who are just running organizations. When I say leadership tool, I mean that it applies to every single human on earth because we all are leaders of something. We're leaders of our group of friends. We're leaders of our families. We're leaders in our communities. Most importantly, we're leaders of ourselves. So when I talk about vision, mission, values, it's not just as it relates to a company or an organization, but also to ourselves. Each of us, I believe, can have a vision statement, a mission statement, and core values statements. And here's why. In my experience, I have found that vision, mission, and value statements provide direction, clarity, alignment, inspiration, and consistency in what we do. And so now when I'm asked by a friend or a colleague or even, heck, one of my customers to do something, I'm actually acting on my vision, mission, and values when I respond to them. Subconsciously, because it's now just a part of how I make decisions, I'm actually referring back to what my vision is, what my mission is, and what my values are. And as a business, the same thing happens day in and day out. Our vision at Junto is to be a global ecosystem of growth, humanity, and virtue. That's what we're shooting for. That's the North Star. We don't know if we're ever going to get there, but that's what we're shooting for. Our mission is to help companies and their leaders become infinitely better at who they are and what they do. And so day in and day out, as we think about new opportunities, as we consider expansion plans, as we talk about people we want to bring into our business, The question becomes, does that decision support our pursuit of the mission and or the pursuit of the vision? And then we also use our values to govern how we do that. And those, you know, we've got seven value statements and I won't go into them here, but that's why they're so critical. And real quick example, last fall, I saw this come to life when um, I was struggling with a really important decision I had to make with our business. And uh, one of our mentors who happens to be a good friend of mine, he was the one person I wanted to go to to help me with this decision. I had it all planned out. I said, okay, I've got my script. Here's how I'm going to deliver the case to, to Evan. 
here's the critical decision I have to make, and here's my recommendation for the decision, and then just see how he responded. So I followed my whole plan in the meeting, and he paused, and he said, you have a vision, right? I said, yep. He goes, what is it? I said, to be a global ecosystem of growth, humanity, and virtue. And then Evan said, you also believe in beginning with the end in mind, right? And for those who don't know what that's referring to, it is one of the seven habits of highly effective people, made famous by Stephen Covey's book. What Evan was telling me, he didn't have to say it, but what he was telling me was, begin with the end in mind, begin with your vision, and that will govern the decision that you need to make. And in that moment, what he basically said was, your decision is wrong, so don't make that one. Find another decision to make that is supportive of your vision. And in true Junto mentor fashion, he didn't tell you you were wrong. Exactly. He didn't, and he didn't give me any advice. And it was a discovery I had to make for myself. And it's not that he knew that he was doing that in the moment. It's more that that's the way that his brain works, which is why he's a mentor in our program and you know why I want him to be a friend and why he is a friend. Well, thank you, Raman. Before we wrap, anything you want to close with? Yes. Um, we're going to close every episode uh, with uh, the same thing that we do in closing Junto sessions, and that is a round of appreciations. So what that means, Jeff, is I'd like to start with you where you have an opportunity to basically express an appreciation for anything. We do this at the end of every session. It uh, typically, especially in a group environment, allows us to build empathy with other people, um, also forces us to build self-awareness, both components of emotional intelligence. And at a very practical level, especially in a larger group setting, uh, typically ends conversations on a very positive note, despite how hard or challenging those conversations could be. So you're going to put me on the spot first. I am. I am grateful for the friends and family and colleagues and clients who have been patient with me over these years as I've learned the kind of skills you talked about in, in these episodes. I suspect that I, like you, uh, did not come to them naturally. And I suspect that I have made more than my share of missteps on the way to wherever I am now. And I am grateful for them and to friends like you for being there with me along the way. That's beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate that we have been friends for this long. Uh, and the reason I appreciate that is because you alluded to when we first met and how you may have, this is my words, how you may have struggled reconciling what you saw and what you heard, and yet you have done your share uh, by maintaining this friendship on your side of things. And I have learned so much from you over the years. I've been inspired by you. I enjoy every single moment I ever get to spend with you. And so mine is very simple, and that is I appreciate our friendship. Thank you very much. Thank you to you out there for listening to the first couple of episodes of Flourishing Together. We look forward to having you along for the ride. What a relief. As I mentioned at the start of episode one, it was uncomfortable talking about myself for so long in these conversations with Jeff. My deep appreciation to him for pulling out so much information that I might not have otherwise shared. From here onwards, the podcast shifts to our regular course conversations that I'll have with the incredible people in Junto's tribe, our alumni, our mentors, and our friends. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode, when we'll hear from two people who practice personal growth and development on a daily basis, the specifics of what they do, 
and how that practice has changed their lives. This episode was produced by Dante32.